if you have one of those, you need to get, you need to melt it down. You need to do anything else with it other than use it when you're playing golf. Take it to the scrapyard. All right, everybody. How you living? No putts given. We are back. Tony Covey, Chris Nickel, and special guest. Special guest. The one, the only Lou Statsman lives in an echo chamber of numbers, I hear. Uh, a sad, lonely existence, apparently, uh, uh, yeah. Lou. It's good to see you guys. Here. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. Tony, what's with the red and green? It's not Christmas. I'm I just kind of, you know, we have transitioned. Like, even the Halloween stuff is gone. Thanksgiving, I'm, I'm already, I'm just, I'm just trying to stay one step ahead. Easter stuff comes out, like, December 20th. When can you start listening to holiday music? I call it never. Christmas music. Never. <laughs> never. 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 Strictly forbidden. I used to work with it. a guy who, who was like, he was an early Christmas music guy. And he would he would start it with like Dominic the Donkey. Yeah, which that's a good I mean, one. just, I think, loosely qualifies his Christmas music. But that, <laughs> yeah. that would start like October. Mm. Yeah. No good. That is a smidge early. Yeah, I... You've got, you got stats on that? I was going to say, I what's don't. the... <laughs> I, I, we could get some, though. We could run. I know somebody who used to work at a music streaming service, so we could get some numbers on that. There we go. And then I'd have to slide into your DMs and tell you how wrong you are about how yeah, I that'd be feel. Great. How Join I the club. Feel the right time to start the music. Yes, yeah, join the club. Always, always entertaining in the DMs. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so uh, just for people that don't know or maybe aren't familiar with you, Lou... Who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am a numbers guy. So I, um, I've been working in analytics before they called it analytics. Um, and I started dabbling in golf about I, maybe just a little over four years ago now. Um, and I had some, some golf data and I thought I could do some pretty cool stuff with it. And I decided to create a blog. And so if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see golf stat pro in parentheses and the story I've never, I don't think I've ever told this. So this would be a first time. So the story behind that is <clears throat> when I decided I was going to create a blog around golf stats, which is extremely exciting. Like it's riveting for so many people. Um, I had to come up with a domain name. Like what am I going to pick? And at the time my daughter was eight years old. So we had a whole list of stuff and she came up with golf stat pro. It was her idea. And I was like, that's pretty good. I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. And uh, I was on Twitter at the time, but I, I didn't use Twitter at all. Zero. And somebody told me, you really need to go into social media, start tweeting some stuff out there. You, you've done a couple of neat things already. People are going to be interested and i didn't really understand how twitter worked at all i'm like i i don't even know what you're talking about like what do you mean like i'm gonna go on there and who am i gonna talk to they're like no you just put it out there and, and people will see it you can comment and and so i started and um not too long after my daughter's like well are you the golf stat pro on twitter and i was like no i just I just have my name up there you need to put golf stat pro because then that'll <laughs> People will know who you are at that point. And so I did, and that's why it's been there ever since, and it'll probably never leave. It'll always be there. So that, that's the story behind the moniker and, and where it came from. And what we can take from that is that an eight-year-old girl 
knows more about social media than maybe all of us, right? Probably, <laughs> yeah, more, more than likely. I think all the kids do these days. So yeah, more than likely. And and so I started down this path and created this blog and and um, started uh, you know meeting people um, and it it's just taken me in some crazy places over the last four years. Um, and now I, uh, work for Arcos. Um, I'm an assistant coach, uh, for the Princeton men's golf team, uh, which is near where I live. Um, I, ambassador for putt few books and I work with a, a number of elite players, uh, give some data to a couple of tour coaches. Um, it's crazy. Like I pinch myself every day that I, I get to do this for you know, a side hustle. So it's, it's been awesome and so much fun. You also drive an Uber on the weekends. <laughs> Seems like I, the one job you don't have. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't drive an Uber. I'm a Lyft guy. I'm a Lyft right. guy. Right. Yeah. On the weekends. Yeah. But yeah, it's been awesome. It's been a lot of fun and uh, can't wait to see where it uh, continues to go. You mentioned you worked with elite players. One of them is, is Austin Greaser. Correct. Yeah. The Masters, among other uh, significant tournaments last season. Yes. What, what kind of stuff do you do with Austin and your other elite players? Like, what, yeah. what is your actual function? What is your role? What, what are you giving them? Yeah, uh, all of them are a little bit different. Uh, so some of them we do some stats review. Um, and then some of them, or most of them, we prep for tournaments. So we will go through tournaments and we will pick out uh, lines off the tee, but everything that I do there is customized to them. Uh, so not everybody has the same dispersion. Everybody's a little bit differently. And, and, and if you really want to try to eke out everything you can, you, you want to try to understand a player's tendencies, uh, as well as you can. And so, you know, a club like the driver, um, you can have, you know, two different elite players and, and you can just look on the PGA tour and you can see some players are, you know, they're a lot, they have a much larger dispersion than other players. Um, and, you know, when you find yourself on tighter holes, you know, knowing exactly or as exact as you can, knowing, you know, how big of a window you need allows you to make the most appropriate decision. So you now there's one player that I work with who needs probably about 69, 70 yards, somewhere in there. Uh, and there's another player that needs about 59. And so if we get to a hole that has, you know, 64 yards between, you know, out of bounds on the left and out of bounds on the right, they're playing at some, you know, course with houses all around it down in Florida. Um, one of those players, we're probably not going to hit driver. Uh, and one of them we would uh, because he has enough room based on how, uh, how accurate he is with driver off the tee. So those are the kind of things I help them with. And we go through a lot of different exercises um, to understand what their dispersion is. Um, I also help them with practice plans. I've put a lot of time and effort into uh, learning um, as much as I can from people that are way smarter than me, uh, skill acquisition, motor learning, and, and how we can learn most effectively. And I get to apply some of that with the players that I work with. So it's a, it's a mix of stuff and it's, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, 99.99999% of, you know, all of their success is 100% is because of them. Like it's, it's not because of anybody else other than them and, and being around these players, it's, um, it's fascinating to see how much drive they have 
and how committed they are to to getting better and being as good as they can. And the thing that I've noticed that's common amongst all of these players is they are they're all extremely open-minded for the most part. Right? None of them are like, nope, this is none of them have blinders on. Do and, do none of these guys have Twitter accounts? None of them. <laughs> uh, do any of them? Some of them do. But yeah, that's a good, so they're, they're not, they're always open to learning, right? They're always trying to learn more and where, wherever that happens to be, if it, if it can help to make them better, they're going to try to get there. Now, I think they, they've all done a pretty good job at having a filter of, you know, they're not going to listen to, you know, every YouTube video out there and, and every hot tip uh, to make your game better. Uh, they're good at filtering, you know, what's good and what's bad, um, but they're open to learning and, and uh, it's, it's a pretty common trait among the players I've been exposed to. So with that, Lou, you know, you talk about how dedicated they are. Obviously, a lot of players you work with are already very good, if not great golfers from a skill standpoint. What are the biggest gaps in their learning or, you know, where you can bring a lot of value to them? Because kind of that, you know, you don't know what you don't know part of it. What is it? you know, where you really get those aha kind of light bulb moments from these players that are, again, they're already very, very good and accomplished players in, in many cases, but where they go, oh man, I've never thought about it that way. Or, huh, yeah, didn't even think to look at it in that manner. You know, I would say um, without question, it's been the mental side of the game. So um, I got to know a gentleman his name is dr izzy justice and he's a sports neuroscientist and he works with athletes across many sports from golf to nascar and everything in between uh, fascinating guy incredibly smart guy uh and incredibly accomplished guy um and uh, through getting to know him uh, i started to be exposed a little bit more to what he does um you know, helping athletes perform at their peak. And I, you know, I've read probably, you know, dozen of sports psychology books out there. And I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but I was never, never a fan of, of them. Um, I always felt like they were as a, as a numbers person, I always felt like they were, you know, lacking in a lot of the detail that I would have wanted to understand, um, and I would want to know a little bit more of the, you know, what's going on? Why is it going on? What can I do about it? Why do those things work? Um, instead of just, you know, they, they control your emotions, you know, let it go, forget about it. You know, some of the basic stuff, and I don't mean to trivialize what anyone's put out there, and I don't want it to sound the wrong way, but I always walked away from those books going, I'm not really sure exactly precisely what you want me to do. And so when I learned a little bit more about what Dr. Justice does, he has a certification program uh, for coaches to go through. And I'm, you know, I, I didn't walk out of that with a PhD in neuroscience by any stretch, but I walked out of that with a really good understanding of how our brain is working from a neuroscience perspective and what's going on when we get anxious, nervous, upset, mad, angry, disappointed, frustrated, you know, pick the word, what's going on, why that's happening, what it impacts, and then what you can do about it. And so of all the things that I've worked with, with players, I, I give them, you know, what I've learned. I'm regurgitating what I've learned from him through his process, 
that is the thing that they've all told me has been probably the most effective. Um, so that that's the number one thing. It's a really cool area, and uh, it's a it's a you know it's a conversation I always enjoy having with players. What's an example of that? Like something like there's a you know what would the movie trailer kind of look like for that course? Or that can you give me an example where you know Tony just snap hooks you know two balls in a row off the tob and and he's he's a little frustrated with himself and. What would you, you know, what might you say to him? What could you say? Hey, I want to sit down and work with you for 30 seconds. Here's something I could. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. So I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to give you the two minute view of that. Um, it's a little bit more than two minutes. It's not much more, but it's a little bit more than two minutes. Um, basically your brain is a big ball of electricity, right? And your ability to hit a golf shot exists in your brain. It does not exist in your muscles. There's no such thing as muscle memory. The muscles have no ability to retain or store information. The muscles are executing the instructions that the brain is providing to them. And so because your brain is a big ball of electricity, there's frequencies. There's high frequency, low frequency. High frequency, think of it like uh, a seismograph, right? You know, mm -hmm. when there's an earthquake going on, it looks like this. Um, low frequency, there's no earthquake. It's just kind of flat line. There's nothing there. I know that one really well. Yeah. And so... What happens when you get to high frequency, when you get mad, angry, upset, anxious, nervous, scared, what happens when you get to high frequency is it does a couple of things. Um, it impacts your ability to deliver those instru instructions effectively. Um, and first thing that it does is it, it messes up the sequencing potentially of those instructions and, and how they get delivered. And so we think of as golfers, we think of sequencing in terms of golf, you know, sequencing of, uh, of, our, of our swing and the kinetic sequence, if you're familiar with, with uh, what that is. Well, these instructions that are going from your brain to your muscles have to go and get executed and fire your muscles in a certain order. And when you get to high frequency, um, those instructions, which are traveling down neural pathways, think of those like roads that are going throughout your body. Um, those instructions, when you're in high frequency, they're going to run into traffic. Get, there's a lot of traffic on those roads. And so let's say, and this is oversimplifying, let's say the bit of information that needs to get to your left wrist so that at impact, your left wrist is one degree of flexion at impact. It gets there a little bit late because there's a huge traffic jam, you know, in your left arm. Um, and it's at one degree of extension at impact because it could be next time. Yep. Well, laptop. it's not an excuse. It's true. That's, that's what's going on. And so if it gets there a little bit late, you're not going to be in one degree of flexion one and that throws the face way off and you hit a bad shot. So when you see golfers on TV that get into really high stress situations and their swings start to look funky, that is a contributing factor. The instructions are showing up out of order, out of sequence. Things are happening out of order, out of sequence, which is why their swing looks funny. The second thing that it does when you get into high frequency is it impacts your ability to feel force. So feeling force would be, if you've ever gotten nervous um, and your arms start to feel heavy, your hands right. start to feel heavy, like that is your brain having a, a tough time um, feeling force. And so how that translates to golf, I'm, I'm sure you've both have done this. Um, you're, you have a wedge in your hand. It's a perfect number for that wedge. There's no wind. It's flat. No, you're not uphill or downhill. You hit it exactly how you want on the button, flight it exactly how you want. And as soon as it leaves the club, you're like, be close, like get in the hall. Like, and 
and it drops out of the sky 25 yards short or it goes 25 <laughs> yards long and you're like, I have no idea. You, it's one of those where you legitimately like, I have no idea what just happened. What just happened? Well, if you are at all high frequency, your ability to feel force can, can be impacted. So let's say you typically swing your wedge 80 miles per hour. Uh, you may have swung at 85. You may have swung at 75. It felt to you like it was exactly 80 because your force is off a little bit. Um, putting also happens in putting when you get into high stress situations. You'll see a player in a high stress, high stress situation with a 25 footer and they hit it 12 feet by or they leave it eight feet short. And they're like, what just happened? Your ability to feel force gets impacted. And the last thing that it does when you get to high frequency, when, when those roads get uh, clogged up with traffic, the last thing that it does is it impacts your ability to hold a target. Uh, so golf is very different than most every other sport in that you're not typically looking at the target in golf, uh, unless it's a close putt or if you happen to be a heads up putter. Other than that, you take one last look and then you're looking down. As soon as you look down, your brain has to have the ability to hold that target. Um, it's kind of like um, shooting free throws with your eyes closed, right? You step up, you dribble a few times, you look up, you close your eyes. You have to remember where that is. Well, that gets a lot tougher when you get to high frequency. So when you see players in high pressure situations that hit these, you know, maybe a big block or a big pull, a contributing factor to that can be that they lost where the target was. They looked down and their brain shifted the target seven, eight, nine, ten 10 yards right. And all that's happening is their body is reacting to where that target, to, to where it now thinks the target is which is why they hit some of those shots. So that was probably more than two minutes, but that's in a nutshell what's going on. And the entire objective of uh, you know, trying to tackle the mental game when you're, when you're golfing is getting to low frequency and staying at low frequency. That's the entire objective. Low frequency is where you're going to find the zone. If you ask any player that's ever been in the, have you ever been in the zone playing golf, playing any sport? Has it sure. ever happened? Yeah, like twice. Absolutely. Like twice. What did it feel like? Felt like nothing. Felt like nothing. Like it was just total control. Like, like cruise control. Yeah. What else? Um, slow. Such a common. That's a, like such it. a common answer. It felt really slow. I was in control. It was easy. You know, I was unconscious. Well, that's when you're in low frequency, you have alpha and theta brainwaves. That that's predominantly what it will be. And that feeling um, is what you will get when you have alpha and theta brainwaves. And so the entire objective of the mental game is, is trying to get to that state. Now, that this does not guarantee you're going to hit a good shot. It just kind of tips the scales in your favor. And when you're high frequency, that doesn't guarantee you're going to hit a bad shot. It just kind of tips the scales that way. Um, so the entire objective is to try to stay low frequency. There's a lot of different things you can do, but that's... When I first learned this and first was exposed to this, um, and I'm going through it really, really fast, um, it, for the first time, the light bulb clicked, and I was like, okay, I get it now. Like That's what's going on. That's what's going to happen. Here's what you can do about it, and here's why those things work. And the answer to why those things work is because they lower your brainwave frequency, which is the entire objective of what we're trying to do. So how do you, I mean, this is, this is fascinating. We've gone down a little ah, this bit is really rabbit cool. hole here, but yeah, this is, I got how do you, how do you clear the traffic jam? 
Um, so there's a lot of things you can do. So, uh, you're breathing, like um, you breathe in your pre pre-shot routine, right? You take a deep breath. Why do you do that? Calm the Everybody does. I don't know that I do. I don't think <laughs> well, that's, uh... most people do. Most people take some kind of deep breath. Well, if we had you hooked up to an EEG machine to measure your brainwave frequency, um, and you took a deep breath, you would see your brainwave frequencies start to come down. Um, so that's one thing that you can do. And you can, uh, you know, you can magnify that through some other techniques that probably, I won't share those publicly. I'll tell you guys after. Um, but, you know, just taking a deep breath, a really slow controlled deep breath is going to lower your brainwave frequency. Focusing on something really intently is going to lower your brainwave frequency. So right now I'm looking at a web camera that's right in front of me. Or, yeah, or, you know, I'll go right over here. I have a picture. I have a whiteboard that's over here on my wall right behind and there's two different kinds of focus. There's macro focus and micro focus. And macro focus is just, you know, I'm just kind of noticing things around me. So all I'm doing is looking at detail and then finding details and more details and details about the details. And simply by doing that, going through that exercise, I'm lowering brainwave frequency. So if you're walking down the fairway and you, you know, you, you're, you can look up at the clouds and Macro focus would be, oh, there's a bunch of clouds in the sky. Micro focus would be, hey, there's a cloud. Oh, look at that one. It looks like Snoopy. Uh, and that one, you know, looks like, you know, it looks like my car. It looks like the first car I had when, when I was a kid. Look at that. Oh, there's like an exhaust coming out. And you're finding all these details about the clouds or you're looking at a tree and you're looking at a specific part of the tree and maybe a branch and then focusing in on some twigs and some leaves. And simply the act of doing those things is going to lower your brainwave frequency. Uh, and you can do that through all of your senses. So by really engaging all of your senses, you can um, lower your brainwave frequency. So if you were to take a drink of Gatorade, um, instead of just taking a drink of Gatorade, what you could do is take a drink of Gatorade, put it in your mouth, kind of swish it around a little bit like you are a, a wine taster, a sommelier, and, and notice all the hints of, you know, your blue, your, your blue Gatorade. <laughs> you know, I, I, I notice blue. Raspberry. Yeah. Oh, there's some aftertaste. Um, yeah, there's a chemical. Um, but noticing that and noticing the texture and the temperature and how the temperature feels and how it changes as it's in your mouth, all of that and focusing on that is going to accomplish our primary objective, which is lowering your brainwave frequency. That's the goal of all of this is to lower brainwave frequency. So again, I'm going through this so fast and, and, and relatively high level, but that's kind of the gist of it. And, and that part has been fascinating to me and to see it in play and to see how it has helped myself and how it helps other players has been awesome. It's been a lot of fun. This is wild. Absolutely wild. Again, not a direction I thought if we were going to go down, but that's fine. Yeah. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, one of the jobs, one of your, I think you have like 30 jobs, if my count's correct. We <laughs> talked about at the beginning, you work for Arcos. You are privy to what is at this point got to be a massive, massive data set. How many, how many shots in the Arcos database, give or take? Over five, 570 million. Rounding. Okay. Yeah. To put so, that in perspective, ShotLink had, and ShotLink is what the PGA Tour has used since 2004. Every shot basically in the PGA Tour for the events they use it at is like 23 million, 24 million. 
And Arco says 570 million. It's insane. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so based on, and I know you spend a lot of time in that database poking around. I want you to give us some things that everyday golfers, again, according to the data, based on the data, not, not what I feel, what Chris <laughs> feels, what, what, what things should golfers just stop doing? Based on what does the data suggest that, yeah, that we need to uh, just. There's a, there's a lot, like we'll start off with, um, an obvious one, uh, three wood dropping down to three wood for accuracy, right? People are typically, they're going to be for most players are between one and 3% more accurate with three wood compared to their driver. Um, and by that, I just simply mean they hit about one to 3% more fairways, um, their dispersion. So if you look at their entire shot pattern. Their entire shot pattern, their three wood is going to look almost exactly the same as their driver, just um, shorter. Which, which means your worst shot with three wood is going to be about as bad as your worst shot with driver, just going to be a little bit shorter. Um, so players dropping down to three wood to gain accuracy is that's just not how it works. It, it is marginal. And the gain, the very, very marginal gain that you get in accuracy is more than offset by uh, the fact that you are pretty much guaranteed to be shorter than your driver. Like if you hit a hundred shots with driver and a hundred with three wood, your drivers are going to be longer. Like your longest three wood is probably going to go longer than your shortest driver, but um, overall you're going to be shorter overall. Now, the only time you should really, really uh, put it into play is if you can, uh, if you're hitting three wood to remove, you know, reaching something. That's really about the only time. So when you when you need to hit it shorter, not when you need to hit it straighter. Exactly. Yeah. If you really need to hit it straighter because it's a crazy tight hole, you need to be dropping down multiple clubs. For most that was going to be my question: Is okay if it is that type of situation because this is. It's a common fallacy we hear all the time, right? Is right. Ooh, hey, you know, you might want to want you know one of these clubs because ooh, those tighter par fours and you know whatever. Okay, if I'm going to drop from driver, how what do I need to drop to to see a significant benefit in terms of accuracy? Mini like, driver, yeah. like seven iron. Like, do I, mean, I need to go down? Like, I really I mean, do. It depends. It depends on the situation, and this is why. You know, it's extremely helpful to know what your dispersion is. So in Every Shot Counts, Mark Brody, he kind of touched on the subject. And, you know, it, it, it depends on the circumstances. There's a lot of things that impact this. But roughly, us amateurs, we, we only want to hit about 5% of our, our shots out of bounds, like into penalty situations. Um, and if you're hitting more than that, I mean, obviously, we want less than that. But <laughs> if you're hitting more than that, um, then you are not being optimal. So when you have a situation where you have, you know, out of bounds on both sides and you have to fit it into a window, um, you have to know how big your window is. And everybody has different windows. Um, you know, amateur, you know, typical 10, 12 handicap probably needs 75 to 90 yards, depending on the player, somewhere in that range. That's why it's important to know what yours is. Um, and what you would do is you would, if, if you have, let's say you have 55 yards of room between OB, you're playing some tight course in Florida, you need to drop down to the club where 95% of your shots are going to stay in play. 
we want that to be the longest club in your bag, but we want it to be, you know, 95% are going to be in play. So knowing that, um, so nine iron, Chris. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That solves it. That solves it. I can play a lot of par fours, nine iron, nine iron, wedge, two putt. Wedge, wedge, wedge. (laughs) But yeah, I I have those shots too. Or what else you got, Luke? So I like that one. Fairway, not for accuracy. Yeah. Fairway, not for accuracy. Um, playing this is, so this is a pet peeve. I'm, I'm sliding in one of my pet peeves here. It, this was really shocking to me. So one of the things that I had looked at was where people are playing from, you know, what tees are you playing? And then, and then because I have all their data, I know how far they hit the ball. And it is shocking to me how many, you know, players that are typical players, typical male amateur hits it, you know, 219, somewhere right, right around there, give or take. I feel that's wrong. If you, do you feel it in your gut? Right. Down I feel, deep. Uh, then it's probably right. <laughs> um, Damn it. Yeah, it's probably I right. Think, I think Tony's having one of those uh, construction uh, issues in his arm again. His feels are off. Yeah, you're trying to get it way off. So it's shocking to me how many players are playing at 66, 67, 6,800 yards. It's, it's just, it, they would have, in my opinion, like uh, USGA and PGA of America came out with the T at forward campaign, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, and I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure if you hit it, you know, 225, you should be playing a golf course between 5,800 and 6,000 yards is what they suggest. And that aligns pretty good with, you know, right about where it should be. Um, that's going to give you, you know, plenty of opportunity to hit greens. You're going to hit a mix of clubs. Um, it's a it's a good yardage for you for somebody that hits a 220, 225. Um, playing it at 6,700, you're going to be hitting driver three wood, driver five wood, you know, driver of your longest hybrid on most of the par fours. Um, and you're going to be hitting a really long club and uh, on many of the par threes as well. So that's a little bit of a pet peeve for me. And I think people need to stop doing that and they'll have more fun if they do that. Nonsense. How would somebody figure <laughs> out like what, like you said, those numbers USGA has, et cetera. Are there any other, you know, kind of quick calculations or tips kind of like, Hey, if my average driver length is, you know, if, if somebody does have Arcos or another stat tracking platform where they can look and see, Yep, my average driver is two forty five. Okay, I should be playing from. Yeah, the no the USGA T at forward campaign, which you can Google. You know USGA T at forward. The guidelines there are great. You know from okay. what from what I've looked at with you know a distribution of what kind of approach shots people would have if they played you know a golf course of that length, and I've looked at a number of of golf courses you know, that play in the 5,800 to 6,000 yard range. And then I've looked at, you know, tee shot length of players and, and what that would leave approach shot wise. And it, and it, it aligns really closely with what you would see a tour pro would have, um, you know, playing. So uh, those guidelines are great. I would, I would suggest those. There's a, there's a guy on Twitter, his name's Keith Cook. You know, he has something pinned to his, uh, to his page where some people will say like five iron carry distance times 36, but that's probably way too aggressive. Um, I think it's like, I think, and he did, he worked through it and it was really good. I want to say it was maybe five iron carry distance times, like 33 or 34 for most rounds. Maybe it was, you know, 
that times 35 if it's a tournament round. Um, but it was, it was, it was well thought out, well done, and it was pretty good guidelines. And it ends up aligning pretty close to what you're going to see from USGA. Yeah, that works. The five yeah. iron works. Yeah. <clears throat> I like that one. That was probably pretty close. I was hoping to find it quickly, but it looks like he has a different pin tweet at the moment. So oh, he does. Yeah. Then we probably won't find it quickly. He had a pin forever. Um, did you feel that was right in your gut, Tony? Or feel good, do, Tony? do we need to do, do we need to address that in some manner? Nah, well, I, I guess I'll I guess I'll accept that answer. Okay, all right, that's good. Um, all right, next, um, uh, I had a, a, a smorgasbord of stuff that I wanted to maybe talk about, but here's one that um, is I'm going to answer it a couple of different ways. This is around the green. Um, I started to look at around the green performance. And I looked at um, every skill level. So I bucketed players by what their skill level was, by what their index was. And then within that group of players, so let's say I was looking at all the scratch players. Within that group of scratch players, I looked at the players that had the best short game and the players that had the worst short game. And I wanted to see you know, if there were things that, that jumped out, bubbled up based on how, what they were doing and how they were doing it. Um, this was fascinating. So I don't know if this necessarily tells you what people should stop doing. Part of it does, but part of it is just fascinating to me. The best short game players of good golfers. So single digit index or better is what I'm going to say a good golfer is. The best short game players used a much wider variety of clubs. Really? So around much the wider variety of clubs. I would, have, I, I would have actually guessed the opposite. And the worst short game players, they typically were grabbing their 56 or their 60. Like they were grabbing two clubs. Like, and that's all that they did. They used the same club. And, and I even looked at it where I was looking and narrowing it down to um, situations where they were long-sided, right? Where they had the ball was two yards off the green and the, and the pin was all the way across the green. So they had 20 yard shot and 18 yards of green to work with. And they're just grabbing their 60 all the, all the time, 60, like every 60, time, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60 all the time. But <clears throat> Must have when, I, when I looked at the bad players and by bad players, I mean, 15 index and above. It was the opposite. The best short game players of the bad players, they typically only used a couple of clubs. The worst short game players of the high index players, they used a wide variety of oh. clubs. They're, they were trying to, you know, to me, it was, it almost, um, the way I would describe it is they were probably trying to hit a lot of different shots that they, they might not have. Um, and uh, they, it was, it was amazing to me. So what I would say stop doing is if you're a good player, stop grabbing your 60 for every shot around the green. And if you are a higher index player, you know, stop trying to hit bump and runs with your hybrid, you know, out of, out of the rough, you know, stick with a couple of simple shots. Um, and I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say with the higher index players, the number of, of double chip situations where they would hit a shot 
um, <laughs> and not hit the green was orders of magnitude more than the better short game players for the high index players that were, you know, 56. I'm going to take this 56 and I'm going to put it on the green. Um, and I know how to hit that shot and I can hit a couple of shots with it and I'm just going to get it on the green. So I'm putting next. So that was a really cool one to go through and kind of see what, uh, you know, what was going on there. <laughs> how does your gut feel about that? that my sounds gut right. My gut can, my gut's confused because it's like, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it may, it makes sense in a, in a sense of like, now what if I want to go from being a worse golfer to becoming a better golfer it's almost like hey get good at one two you know one or two shots around the green and yeah. then once you get capacity to execute those start adding a third one but maybe not a third fourth and fifth but maybe like okay i'm gonna add a bump and run shot or a different type of shot or i'm gonna add one more and then kind of see see how that goes but i'm not just gonna go from hey i'm gonna use my 56 or 60 to I'm going to use six different clubs around the green. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to put it. Um, and I, I don't, um, I wish I had, I, I don't know that I'd be able to get there, but um, understanding that progression. It, it, if I had unlimited time and resources and didn't have to, you know, didn't have to uh, drive Uber on the weekends, I would probably <laughs> lift, dive into that lift. one. Lift. <laughs> lift, yeah, sorry, lift. <laughs> um but uh, that'd be cool to understand the progression for players. So, so stop, stop only using one club if you're a good player and, and stop trying to hit every shot in the bag if you're a higher index player. Tony, stop it. Stop <clears throat> it, Tony. I will not. <laughs> I'm learning a lot here, Tony. I want to I hear this one. You know, this, this is so typical. Um, and this is, you've heard this a million times before, but amateurs typically need to take more club. Um, they are coming up short so, 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 I so, know that's so wrong. much. I definitely feel you're it, wrong there. It's, I feel I'm wrong there too. So I would, I would tell people that um, you know, there isn't many situations where a middle of the green or slightly past middle of the green distance number for most players is going to you know, not be a good distance number for them. Um, when I look at front pins, it's, it, you know, front pins are hard, are, you know, even PJ tour players to front pins don't do as well, unless there's a body of water in front of it, right? If there's a body of water in front of it and there's a huge penalty for coming up short and they're, they're blowing it past the a motivating factor, very motivating factor. But if there's not a body of water in front of it, even tour players struggle to front pins to get it there. But amateur players, whoo. We are really bad to front pins. We come up short so much. Um, so taking a little bit more club um, is certainly very advisable. You're going to ask seems, me something before This seems obvious too, and yet I know people cannot force themselves to do it. The traffic jams, I guess. I, that plus it's just, you know, how far do you hit your seven iron? Oh, I hit it 150. Well, you hit it 150, like, you know, 25% of the time, 75% of the time, it's shorter than 150. If now, the flag is 155 and it's right on the front of the green, that's still an eight iron, right? Because that's 155. What else would I hit there? But you right. even have, so, and I totally can see that that ego is probably, you know, the 90% of it where, yes, it's I hit my seven iron 175 once in the launch monitor 
whatever. Therefore, that's the new my, average, man. Now my that's, now my new seven. I feel that's how just works. That's how I feel an average should work is whatever I remember as the as the best. But what about players that are willing to say, "Hey, I don't care. I'll put ego aside. Whatever the case is." But they still don't have a great way to understand what that clubbing up is like. Well, shit. Yeah, I'd hit a six iron there. I don't care if it's six iron or seven iron, but I don't know when I should do that. Where let's say it is that 150 and here at altitude in Colorado. Yeah, I can get pitching wedge to 150, but okay. I should probably be hitting nine iron, maybe even eight iron in some situations to it to a 150 pin. How do you get somebody to tr- to transition to that if they're willing to put that ego aside? Say, I don't care what club it is. If I'm playing with them and they're my partner, I lie to them. I give them the wrong yardage. <laughs> I tell them Perfect. I add yardage every single time, um, and they're like, "Really? Is that re- that looks the one fifties right here? We're standing on it. He just told me it's one sixty four. That I'm must like, be oh, a little no, back. Pins back. Yeah, pins all the way in the back. <laughs> you got to hit that. So. Yeah, it, you know when people uh, when people talk about dispersion uh, with uh, with golf, um, there's more than, than just east west. There's more than just side to side dispersion. There's north south, um, and north south is bigger than east west. So it's typically you know a fair amount bigger. And I, I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say for a ten handicap from a hundred and twenty five yards in the fairway. The one standard deviation north-south is was maybe 14 yards, 15 yards, something like that. It's okay. pretty big. And you typically, you're going to want to have, you know, a target, at least one standard deviation away from the edge of the green. And so if you have a standard deviation of 14 yards from, well, you're gonna, you know, you want people to do math. I see where, yeah, I see where this is going. I, I thought yeah. there was going to be no yeah. math. <laughs> yeah, so you would want your target to be at least 14 yards on the green. Um, and, right. you know, there's so many factors that come into play here, but, you know, that typically means there's very, very, very few circumstances where, you know, you're not going to be pretty deep onto a green if you're the typical amateur player. Um, right. So it's just, uh, we, it's just how it is. Just Check it is. your bell Take curves, dummy. Check <laughs> your bell curves. Yeah. Check right. your bell curves. Right. One standard deviation is what sixty four percent, roughly. Yeah, there's sixty eight. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, about that. Two is about ninety five. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. So I feel sixty four is close enough. I feel six. <laughs> I'm going to round up to sixty eight. I'm going to round up to sixty eight because I like it. Yeah. I like it. All right. I'm going to ask one more question, Tony, and you can ask whatever questions you have. I, I, I need this in my life, Lou. I need this in my life. Where. People have, you know, if people are honest about keeping a, an index, you know, you should shoot your index, call it once every four, once every five times. Again, taking into account rating, slope, differential, yeah. whatever. Okay, that's great. But we all know the percentage chance of somebody shooting under their handicap by one, two, three, four, five strokes uh, increases rapidly based on whether or not it's a member guest. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, this is, uh, yeah. One, so, true. Very true. So yeah. I want a t shirt or something that has like a chart of like just the actual <laughs> mathematical probability of shooting your handicap and then like one, two, three, like all the way through like 10 strokes better. So I can just like hand those out at a member of guests and be we, like, wow, 
you just did something that mathematically, you know, th- that was a one in 84,312. This, this is brilliant, you know? Chris. We we need to find I need an this. apparel sponsor who's going to make us the member guest polo. Yeah, like the member guest, and, and it'll be powered by Lou Stagner. And Love it. Can we get that information? Can you do that? Like what the like what yeah, the you know, there's, it is? There's a really good um there's a it's an old website. It's been up there forever, but Pope of Slope. Um Dean I forget his life. He was USGA guy who, you know, was part of the handicap system. Um Pope of Slope. And oh. he has a chart up there, the odds of shooting an exceptional tournament score. Um and they're pretty high, you know, depending on, you know, for somebody to shoot net 10 under, that doesn't happen too often. Um, and he has a good chart up there on that. So, yeah. Funny, because like... I see it happen about 20 <laughs> times yeah, a summer. I, it's yeah. amazing how many times. I feel you're wrong, Lou. I know you're wrong about <laughs> well, this. I know you're wrong. Time and time and time again. Yes. I Chris and I got rolled one year. Oh. Yeah, we got <laughs> rolled by people that are, uh, yeah, I mean, I people that are, you know, trying to put their kids through college on a pro shop credit that uh, <laughs> have no problem shooting net 10 under routinely they, on the member guest yeah. circuit. I want to know, you know, so when I shoot, you know, I go to the member guest and I shoot three over my hand go, hey, I'm still 82nd percentile. You know, eight, 80, 81 other people wouldn't have done as good as I did. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, so you can just Google it. Pope of Slope. Odds of shooting an exceptional tournament score, and you'll see a chart up there, and it, and it walks you through by handicap level, and, and then by how many you know net under you are. Um, it's, it's pretty be it's like ninety eight percent, right? Like it's, it's it's spot on. That my life's complete now. I'm yeah, right. I, I'm. Uh, I'll be your first customer for that shirt. Yeah. I, I'll probably wear that shirt every day. I won't just wait for the member guest. I'll wear it, it out so every good. day. Right? So good. It was so good. a good idea. So Lou, what I wanted to ask again, based on the data. Not what I feel, not what you feel, not what anybody feels, what, what Arcos data tells us. Yeah. Are there, is there a club or even clubs that the data suggests, whether it's the loft or a type of club, whatever you got, this club should not be in your bag. Get rid of it. to math. Um, I, um, you talking about generally or for specific players well you tell me you i mean you're the guest answer it any way you want i'm i don't i I wish i could i I don't know that i've ever looked at you know should you rip this club out of your bag Uh, i don't know that i've ever looked at that um if i had to guess i would based on some of the things i've seen there's a lot of players that hit a lot of tee shots out of bounds with their driver um and they they hit it all over the map. And so there would be for higher handicap players. Like I almost, I almost think that for some players, depending on who they are, there should be this progression. Chris, you kind of talked about a progression of the short game and how you should tackle it and how it should get better. I almost wonder for some higher handicaps, if there should be a progression to get down to the driver. Um, so that's one that really jumps out at me. Um, 60 degree wedge for high handicap players. That's typically not a good combo. Like what about know, a 64? Like a 64. Loft. What if I just go up more? Yeah. Is that better? Loft, yeah. More better. That's... More loft equals more better. Yeah. The 64 is going to be even worse. It's amazing. There are people that have those in play 
Um, so in Arcos, yeah. we, you know, we don't just track the shots. We, we know what club you have. And when, and I was astounded at the number of 64 degree <laughs> wedges that live in this world. I've seen like one or two in the wild, um, in all my years. And I was blown away by the thousands and thousands of people that have 64 degree wedge in their bag. If you have one of those, you need to get, you need to melt yes, it down. You need to yes. do anything else with it other than use it when you're playing golf. Take it to the scrapyard. That's what take, I was looking for. <laughs> a wedge you shouldn't have in play. Yeah. 60 degree for high handicap is typically a bad idea. Like I've done a, a lot of um, uh, uh, work around short game performance um, at different skill levels. And for the higher handicap player, um, they are even in situations where they're short-sighted, even in, in those situations, they are typically going to be better with a lower lofted club. Um, and 60 degree is not, if you're at 20 index, it's Skip from it. what I've seen, you probably shouldn't have a 60 in your bag. Not a good idea. Do you ever see Lou where you get to like a certain <laughs> swing speed and because that you're making me think about this in terms of eliminating certain clubs, you know, you know, where somebody's like, Hey, what club do you hit 150 yards? And they're like, well, they have like eight clubs. They hit 150 yards. They hit seven <laughs> iron, six iron, five iron, four iron, hybrid, thin driver. Or if they hit, you know, if they hit a 60 degree, really thin, also yeah. goes 150 yards. Um, where like, again, back to the idea of a progression of like, Hey, you don't need all 14 clubs until you can create meaningful separation at these particular distances, which tends to be more or less a swing speed conversation, but can also be a skill conversation too. Like say, Hey, play with set these seven clubs until you get down to a 16 and then think about adding so on and so forth. Yeah, kind of on that topic. And Tony and I have had discussions around this in the past. Um, he might remember them. Um, there are a lot of players that have gapping issues. So you said, you know, you have eight clubs that go 150. You said it as a joke. That's not too far off with some players um, where they typically, they're, they're gapping. They don't really have gapping. It's so, so, so <laughs> they have small. Overlapping. <laughs> it, yeah, it overlaps or it, it equals. Uh, <laughs> It equals. Um, and the conversation that Tony and I had in the past was uh, people seem to be concerned by consistent gapping through the bag. And what we chatted about was it would be interesting if you had tighter gapping in the shorter part of the bag or the part of the bag where you're hitting most of your shots. Um, because Typically, for most players, your stock shot is going to have the tightest dispersion. So if you have to add a little bit to it, so hit it a little bit harder or hit it a little bit softer, your dispersion gets bigger. If you can just go at it with a stock swing and you're not trying to alter the distance, how far you hit it, that dispersion is going to be tighter. So there's a lot of players that have, especially in the wedge, they'll have wedge gaps that are 15 yards from you know their you know, they're 54 or 55 down to their, their gap wedge. There'll be a 15, 16 yard gap in yardage there. And that's, you know, what do you do when you get in between? Like those are tough. Those are tough for every level of player. 
Um, and especially for amateur players, but they're tough at every level. Like anecdotally, you will 100% you've heard and you will continue to hear a player in the PGA tour that has a good round and they come off and they said, I just, every, I had perfect numbers all day. Like I had great numbers all day. And that means they didn't have to add anything. They didn't have to feather something in there. They're just hitting stock distance numbers all day long. Um, and those are typically going to be a lot smaller. So, you know, changing the bag around where maybe you gap it a little bit tighter. If you hit a ton of shots at your club between, mm -hmm. you know, 80 and 150, really tighten that up and then, you know, have a 150 club and a 170 club and a 195 club. I mean, we're so bad at that chaos anyway. Loop. Just chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. But I, I like that I, because the the concept of gapping, again, when you talk about you know, fallacies, you know, this idea of maybe four degrees, you know, you, you play a 60, a 56, 52, and then maybe your opinion is 46, 42, 38, 30, da, da, da. but what if it were, you know, your gaps were 10 yards or eight, eight, 10, 12, 15, 15, 20, you know, whatever. Right. Um, got me thinking Lou it's chaos man it's chaos it's got yeah, me I think Tony was for it when we talked I about was, it I was no and I, yeah. I still like the idea yeah. I didn't really yeah. tightening up on that short end where I mean we've, we've talked about it, well, it makes sense with everybody right you it miss makes screens you miss hit shots as an amateur you do all of these things and you end up with a, an abundance a disproportionate number of shots from you know maybe it's I would say probably ballparking at 140 and in yeah right. called pitching and wedge so, and under but still if you do that's like okay if i got a five wood like let's take hole number three tony at, at your particular course right tough par three uphill like okay if i have a five wood and i need to hit that five wood let's say i'm going i need to take a little off a of five wood that's well, always I, fun i just grip down half of it and now it's five six seven eight yards as opposed to i don't want to do that with my 50 degree or 52 like i'd rather just again feel good with hit that it. stock just, number yeah i'd rather just hit it but avoid yeah. the traffic yeah so yeah you on got that, me thinking now Lou. no so yeah on that topic so my my bag um my um longest iron in the bag is a five iron um i oh, play your bag is amazing no no i have a different bag now so oh, my, okay. i have a t300s in there which are much stronger lofted so my five is like a typical four iron and then it's I go 20, to a seven wood. Degrees, yeah. yeah, it's like it's like 14 degrees, 14 <laughs> degree five iron. And then I go to a seven wood after that. And I put a seven wood in the bag and I absolutely, I love it. And uh, with, from that distance, like full swing seven wood for me is like maybe 215, right? No, I did I say, I meant like 290, like 290, yeah, 290 with a butter cut. I but it's feel. like 215, but I can throttle that back really easily to, to like 180. Um, and feel pretty comfortable with it. And, and I do that by choking down a lot. Um, but our dispersion in that 200 yard range is huge. It's so right. gigantic. So if I have to, with a seven wood, use that between like 185 and 215 by either, you know, taking a normal grip with it or choking way down to get it to 185, um, I'm thinking about removing my five iron letting my seven wood serve the purpose of the five iron for the times that I do need it. And then tightening up the other end of my bag, even more than it already is. 
So I'm thinking about doing that for next year. I'll let you know how it goes. I can't wait I till you have a 48, 50, 52, 56, and 60 degree wedges. I, yeah. I will say I that wait. some of the smartest golfers I know, specifically myself and Lou, go directly from the seven wood to the five iron. That's, I think that's, that's, that's two brilliant. out of three. Yeah. That's two out of three. I might. We'll, we'll have to a... check in, Tony. What what are two more trips out? Uh, you know, maybe some of our golf fitting people, and we'll we'll see. Maybe they'll convince me to. How do you like the seven wood? It's a cheat it's code. So I good, tell everybody, it? it's a cheat code. I just... I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I can't believe I waited this long to put it in the bag. It's the closest I've ever experienced to a club that that basically hits itself. I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to stand here, seven wood, do your thing. And we'll be <laughs> we'll be happy with the result. Like, yeah, I love it. Absolutely. It's it. like the first couple of times I try, I'm like, what's going on here? This is this is wild. I'm I feel just, yeah. like I feel like this could be a nine part series. You know, Lou part one. And I feel like we're gonna get a lot of questions and feedback and and I hope that we do because I want more questions and um yeah, man, like I said, this has given me an awful lot to think about. Went down to a couple different ways that maybe we didn't anticipate, but it uh um I always appreciate when I learn something new and different and only way to do that is is by talking to people smarter than yourself. So, um, Lou, thanks for coming on. Tony, you know I wasn't talking about you. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> but uh, find us on the interwebs. Tony Covey, Chris Nickel, Lou Stagner. We'll put all the uh, all the, the social handles on Our there. video yeah. guy will do that. Yeah. Well, yep. But then awesome. questions. Let us know what your questions are for Lou. For uh, for any of us, post those on there. And until next time, yeah, we have to have Lou back. This is and we is. and we we want to know how you feel too. So that's important. Tell us to tell how us. do you, you feel? <laughs> Never mind. That you're, and I'm not interested in your data. I, I don't care your about feelings. your data. How do you feel? Uh, how you feel? All right, we're out. See ya.